G'day guys, welcome to What The Foot, where a bunch of new grads try to bridge the gap between the lack of knowledge from coming out of university to the big bad world of podiatry. Tonight we've got Julian. G'day. Tony. Hey guys. Voltaire. Hello. And our guest Michael Peroni this week. Hello. So Michael graduated from podiatry at La Trobe in 2008. Um, he's been an academic at La Trobe since 2011. Um, had roles in both public and private sectors. He's owned his own clinic for nine years and hired over 100 staff. So this week, our chat is going to be about contracts. So a guy that's given out over 100 contacts seems like a good bouncing point. I will let Michael introduce his role because we had a chat before and I've forgotten it. So we'll let you know where Michael's working at the moment. Thanks, Jason. So I've got a few roles at the moment. My main job, um, and it's a, it's a silly job title, but sometimes this is how public health works. I am the strategy and service improvement lead for the chronic and complex directorate at uh, Western Health, um, which means I look after the strategy and the direction of the service for all of our um, outpatient services. So all the services that stop people coming into hospital, particularly through ED, and then support services for those patients being discharged from hospital so they don't represent. Um, aside from that, I own a private practice, a small private practice which I've had for a really long time, which just chugs along. I'm a casual academic at La Trobe Uni, where I do now mostly marking um, and a little bit of project management content. And I'm also studying myself doing um, an MBA through Victoria University. When do you get spare time to do anything? I don't. My <laughs> life is a, um, is a calendar that's colour-coded and every hour is accounted for. <laughs> Excellent. Um, how, what sort of pathway did you take from high school to university? I did what I don't recommend people to do. I went straight out of Year 12, straight into um, Bachelor of Podiatry, it was back in the day. So no break, really would recommend a gap year if you could. But uh, yeah, no, I went straight into, straight into uni. And then from uni, straight into work. I worked the day after I got registered, which is again, not ideal and would not recommend. Excellent. I remember, this is off topic a little bit. I can't remember if you told me the story directly, Michael, but it was like you had like a night out, um, like with all your podiatry mates, once you graduated and mm. you started work the next day. Once you had the dinner, you went home and the rest of them all went out to party and all that. So back in the day, when it wasn't APRO, it was the Victorian podiatry I don't remember what it was called exactly, but it was a Victorian body that, that, that registered you. It wasn't national. They put on a little cocktail function and um, where they put on drinks, put on a, a spread, um, and they presented you with your certificate. It's really nice. Everyone got dressed up. It was like pod ball, but nicer. Um, and because I'm a bit special at times, I started work at 8 o'clock the next day, and I, and I was working rurally at the time, so I had to drive there. So after the... Um, after the dinner and after having like one or two drinks, my job was to collect all the certificates of all of my friends and then um, catch the train home and look after their certificates while I went out and uh, celebrated four years of hard work while I was preparing to cut some toenails the next day. <laughs> Sacrifices. <laughs> and I, I suppose this is an interesting question, seeing you've already achieved so much within your career. Where do you see yourself going with your career in five, ten years from now? Um, in a podiatry sense, um, not to be pessimistic and knowing that this is a podiatry podcast, I'm, I'm done with podiatry. I feel I did everything that I wanted to do um, and I'm more interested in public health 
and beyond public health, how the private system integrates with existing um, public health facilities and how they can kind of work in tandem. Um, so that's what I do. So I only started at Western Health in this role about six months ago and most jobs I tend to stay in for about two years before I look for something else. So I'm enjoying what I'm doing now, but yeah, what I'm doing in 18 months from now, I would dare say to be something in the private sector while still keeping the private practice ticking over, bit of academia, and hopefully would have finished my own study by then. Awesome. That's the best thing with podiatry. And one of the reasons we, we got together and started this podcast is there's so many different avenues of what we can do that's still somewhat connected to podiatry without necessarily being podiatry. Um, so th this week, yeah, we thought we'd run through contracts and the different types of contracts. I know that we've all had chats between each other. I mean, I was a little bit luckier having 10 years of, of working experience before mm. getting into podiatry that I knew a fair bit about contracts, but Volt, what did you know about contracts? Oh, very little. It was just more from like parents or family friends when they talked over it, but didn't really think about it too much until I started applying for jobs and even getting my first job. It's quite a new thing to do. So yeah. Getting that first contract, I was like, I think this is in French. Yeah. Um, I think you look at the dollar amount and be like, yeah. yep, that's more I'm getting, yeah. more than I'm getting now. That seems good. I'll sign up. Yeah. I think that's definitely the biggest appeal of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, coming, so, coming straight out of uni as well, you don't know who to go to your contract either. Well, mm -hmm. probably saying you and me both like had no idea when we both got our contracts. Right, like, yeah. The only person you can really rely on when you think about it is go straight to my dad to look at the contracts, which yeah. is probably in hindsight yeah. not, the, uh, not the best person <laughs> Because um, it wasn't really anything to do with the dietary field. So a couple of the things we're going to talk about in this episode, we're going to go through the different types of contracts, tax, super. Again, to a lot of people, tax and super is an everyday thing. For those that are coming straight out of high school, straight into um, podiatry, Volt and Tony, did you ever pay any form of tax? Did you even have a tax file number while you are at uni? Nope. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I was pretty lucky to work in a supermarket in my high school days, so... A little exposure in the tax system, but not so much where I was concerned about, you know, what I needed to save. And so, um, so all of this was quite new for me, especially starting my first official, you know, job outside. Excellent. And then a couple other things, who to check your contract, like Volt and Julian said before, um, pay scale and grades, probation periods, types of leave, public versus private, different perks. Um, and then we'll run through a few things with our own contracts and things that we noticed during the, the period. And then we'll jump across to the super guru who will be throwing in a few bits of advice throughout. But we got a few questions for Michael specifically for what to look for in different types of contracts. Um, so I thought we'd yeah, kick it off with what types of contracts are out there. There's a heap of different styles that evidently are the same in the end, but different ways of getting there. Um, so we've got full-time, part-time and casual. A lot of people think part-time and casual are the same. They're very different. We'll go through a few of that. Contracting, locum. I don't know about you guys, but locum, I didn't know what that actually meant until fourth year of uni. I heard it advertised and I'm like, I, I had to ask someone, I'm like, what does locum actually mean? And then I'm like, oh, makes sense. Maternity leave, temporary. We've got the only person in our year level with an internship. So we'll ask him a few different questions uh, and what some of the features are of each. So we may as well, I'll break it down. I'll ask Michael with his private clinic, what's the contract that you normally employ employees under? 
Um, so my clinic is somewhat unique in the sense that it is a, a, a clinic that is not my primary focus. It ticks along if it if we, we aim to break even, but that's all it is. It's there so I can keep my podiatry skill set current. Um, so it's not there to you know take over the world or generate a huge amount of income for me. And that's why the contracts for my clinic are, are different. The people I employ, it's very, and, and I shouldn't say employ because they're not employed, they're subcontracted, which, which I'll go into. Um, it's very explicit when we come to an arrangement that this is not the job that they will you know, tell their friends that they do or the ones that they'll retire on. It's purely there for some money on the side. Helps pay for a holiday, helps pay for a car, helps pay down a mortgage. That's all it is. So with that in mind, all of my contracts are commission-based. So no one's employed by my practice. I subcontract people. Um, and those people are classified as entities. So they have their own ABN and I'm engaging, you know, Jason Proprietary Limited, not you, Jason, as a person. Um, and that has um, tax implications for the people who we subcontract. And as long as it's not being held over them and, and, and people have wide eyes going in, they know what they're getting into, but that's fine. So that's one form of private contract where you're engaged as an entity, as a business of your own, and you are, as the business, responsible for paying your own super, um, your own insurances. Um, and you often will just get a percentage of the income you generate for the person you're subcontracted from. So in my case, and in most cases, the, um, the percentage ranges from anywhere from 40 to 50, sometimes a smidge more than 50, usually a percent. Um, and that's based on experience and negotiation. Um, do, do they ever have salary? Um, payment in that sort of scenario or is that quite an uncommon so uh, no no it, it is common so you you kind of two ends of the spectrum you have a full commission based contract in private and then you can have a full salary based um, contract in private and those salary based um, contracts are employee employer based relationships so you're usually paid an hourly rate and it doesn't matter how much income you generate for the business you just get paid your set hourly rate um, and because you're employed, not um, a subcontractor, your employer pays your super, and you get sick leave, you get annual leave, you get maternity leave, paternity leave, you accrue long service leave. It's all kind of factored in. Um, so one end of the spectrum, an hourly rate, the other end of the spectrum, commission, and in the middle, which I think is the best of both worlds, um, is a hybrid model, where you might get paid an hourly rate, um, and so you are employed, you're not a subcontractor, and that hourly rate might be less than it would be if you were um, purely just an employee with no commission. Um, so you get a lower hourly rate and then you get a smaller percentage uh, commission. And the reason I think that model is best is that you still get your annual leave, sick leave, all your leaves, you're engaged as an employee, so they look after all of your super, all of your insurances, except for your professional indemnity insurance. By insurances, I'm talking about um, work cover insurance and, and things like that that businesses need to um, account for. Yeah, so from that point, you are still, you get your base rate. So if you have a sick day, if you're on annual leave, you still get paid something, but then you're incentivized to work harder and generate more income for the business because then you'll get paid a percentage, a commission percentage, um, based on the threshold that you negotiate. So you get paid more by generating more income. And Very motivational, yeah. especially uh, for workers that... Want to work See the harder. benefit of that, yeah. yeah. Hmm. That's the model that I'm on, which I think has been fantastic because starting a new role, 
there's, there's a lot of downside, down time to begin with. Um, also, I, we forgot to mention this before, Michael. We've got a thing where every time you stuff up something that you say um, or just lose the plot of what you're saying, mm-hmm. um, we donate $1 per mistake to Footscape. Okay, very nice. Um, I like that. Yeah, so we thought we'd give something back to Podiatry as well. Uh, so I guess that's $2 because I've lost my train of thought and made a mistake. Uh, that's Yeah, there's a lot of downtime when I started out and it was good to not have that looming over me that I'm not getting paid I'm not mm. doing anything I was able to sit down have a chat with the senior podiatrist jump onto the the FIFA medical diploma and get a few modules done and a few different things like that while still knowing that I'm learning my craft and not mm. having to really stress about it that's something that's, that's pretty good Vol, what you've had a few different contracts yeah what have you been under so far uh so when i was in private um early in the year i was on a contractor so based on commission so yeah if the patient comes i get a certain percentage of that Mm -hmm. and that was all it was so if it was less patient that day i'll get less money if there's more patients i'll get more money and then after that i went to um, ballarat hospital where a bit of a um, weird situation where I got hired as a casual, grade one, but because they wanted to teach me, uh, we had fixed term uh, part-time role for a certain amount of period. So yeah, it's a little bit weird um, the way it's set up. So I, got, I was getting casual rate, but I was still working part-time because mm-hmm. of that fixed part-time. So yeah, it's almost like two or three contracts within this year so far. So. And yeah. what did you learn from the difference between part-time and casual? Um, oh, part-time feels a bit more stable just because, you know, you're getting a specific amount of hours and I don't feel as though you kind of know what you're going to get every week. Mm. Whereas a casual is a bit more of a, this week might get a lot more, the next week might get nothing. So mm. it kind of makes you think, you know, if you want to keep doing it down the line or if you're looking for something else or, yeah, it just makes you think a fair bit. So... Yeah, it's quite interesting, each of them. And one of the main differences legally between um, part-time and casual is that casual rates normally get two or three, sometimes four or five dollars more an hour, but you don't get you don't get any form of leave. Yeah, I, uh, I can speak to that point. So it's actually mandated in law that if you're on a casual contract, you get a loading of 25%. So if you were doing that same role, um, you'd be paid, obviously, 25 You have to change the fraction, but it... it you get paid less and that that 25 percent in say most sectors called on cost that that's what you're talking about jason that annual leave the sick leave that's how much it costs the organization um to do all of that so casual contracts are great but you're not actually getting paid any more overall you're just getting it all in your pocket they're not siphoning off little bits to put into annual leave or long service leave or anything like that and then uh, on top of that with part-time you normally have a minimum amount of hours that you are you've signed to work mm. so hypothetically 10 hours if you sign that as your part-time contract you have to get at least 10 hours mm. if you sign a casual contract as far as i'm aware there's no legality of they have to give you x amount of shifts per week generally handshake and handshake um agreements but yeah nothing legally in the um in the public sector there's a real trend now to have um, a casual bank so when budgets allow it um, and staff are on leave, um, often the podiatry manager or managers from other disciplines will make a call to the casual bank and say, oh, you know, so-and-so is off 
next week. Um, can you come and work? And that suits a lot of um, parents returning to work from um, parental leave, um, or even people on parental leave who can just flex in and flex out. And it's also really good for new grads who are looking for work, particularly if you've had a placement at, I'll make it up, I've worked there at Western, and you were really good on placement, and you negotiate with your manager, uh, with your supervisor rather, to go on the casual bank. Um, they know that you're reasonable because you've had a, a five week stint there. They know you know the IT software and it's very easy to just make a call um, and have you there fairly promptly. So that, that is an, a trend in the public sector, which I think is really positive. That never, that didn't exist when I graduated. So yeah. what would happen if you couldn't make, like say if you couldn't go into work for something like that, who would they get to replace you in that sense? Like would the other podiatrists working there just have to take your patients as well, like share the case? Yeah. So, so, um, Budgets are, are allocated, and when someone is on annual leave, they're still getting paid. So there's no extra money to fill that person who's not there. The only time when you can fill um, when someone's not there is long service leave, because that comes out of a different bucket. So yeah. if someone's on long service leave for, you know, uh, ten weeks, that's where you see those those contracts come up. Long service leave cover for set amount of weeks because they can they can fill that. Um, if someone yeah, is on sick leave or, or annual leave, unless there's budgetary space, they won't fill that. The only, the, the time when you'll find a lot of those contracts or those people who are on leave be filled is toward the end of the financial year. And if the department finds itself um, in the black and has money to spend and there's a demand for it, then they will um, they'll backfill those annual leave or sick leave positions. But it's quite rare. Beautiful. Um, and Tony, I know that you originally applied and were in considering somewhat of a locum job um, with an aged care, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. Um, what are some of the experience, what were some of the things you noticed looking through the contracts and, and that sort of thing that, that turned you off or made you think, oh, I want to do this or that sort of thing and maybe just run down what you understand locum is as not all of us knew what it was. Yeah, so first thing I did was type in locum in Google, uh, found out it was a casual job. Um, yeah, I first interviewed for a locum job and I looked at the contract and I thought, as a new graduate who's fresh out of uni, you know, was straight out of high school, I didn't want to get my own ABN and do my own taxes and my own super. So I thought about it and I thought hard and I'm like, I think I'd rather have a job where the employer deals with the super, the taxes and a salary rather than a commission where, you know, you have to get um, all these different legalities and papers signed. Um, and that's what led to my first job. I managed to secure a full-time salary position. Uh, and this specific job had great admin staff because they dealt with all the forms and all the taxes and everything that I wished for. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I thought it was much easier option to start off with. And as the months go by, goes by, I thought if I gain enough experience, I could change to possibly a locum or part-time and commission job later on. Just one point point there, um, locum roles aren't necessarily casual, they're just fixed term. Okay. So casual is very, very different. You, you, you often won't find very many true casual, we call you at the drop of a hat, we'll pay you loading, come and work for us, we're desperate. Most, um, with like the role you're talking about there, is a fixed term locum position. So we're employing you from this date to this date to do this amount of days per week or this amount of hours per week. Um, and that's it. You're still engaged as an employee, so they're looking after your super. They're looking. They're paying you annual leave and sick leave and all of that. Um, but that's that's truly what a locum position is. It's just a fixed term contract. Mm. I guess as a new grad, 
I was kind of looking for something long term as well. So um, yeah, that position was probably not ideal for what I was looking for. Excellent. Um, and the last sort of major contract or, or um, that we could really think of was an internship, which we were having a chat before that there's only really one that we can think of in the podiatry world, and that's the one that Julian has. Um, so do you want to run through some of the what you've noticed is different? Because you're also working as a subcontractor as well? In private clinic, yeah. In a private clinic. Uh, if you can just some of the differences you've noticed between the two. So with my um, internship contracts, I'm part-time. So the main difference I've noticed is having that annual leave, having that sick leave. So for example, like my graduation was an annual leave day. It was nice to be paid for that. It's been quite a few days. I've been too unwell to come into work and still being able to be paid for that um, and recover is quite a, it's a, it's that nice security feeling because paying rent and bills and all that, as opposed to um, my private job where I'm sub subcontracting. Essentially, if I don't go to work for being sick or if I didn't have any patients, then I wouldn't get paid. That's the main thing I have noticed. I suppose my contracts as an intern is quite similar to Tony's at the moment because I'm salary part-time. I suppose the main differing thing is the role that I'm performing where it's not doing podiatry specific work. So I don't really have commission to aim for or anything like that. Yeah. It's just to achieve the roles that are set out in my contract to do. Mm. Yeah, the main thing that I've taken out of that um, contract I've got is just it's very nice to have those annual leave, that personal leave banked up, which is quite nice, yeah. I think it's important to note that an internship in a legality sense is exactly the same as a, as a part-time position. So I don't know if your role is... Um, ongoing or if it's fixed term. Oh, so graduate, yeah, graduate, graduate position. So fit yeah. one one year from the commencement yeah. of the contract. So it's yeah. essentially a new grad role, which is a, a fixed term, um, part time role. Yeah. So that's that is the same. Just because it's labelled an internship, doesn't change it. Doesn't differ. Make it any different. I should say um, to just a normal fixed term contract. There's no. Yeah, I feel like some people will see internship and think you should get paid less or something like that. It, it, it is on the same terms as any other um, industrial contract. It, I, it, that was actually quite funny you mentioned that because hearing that word like during my uni time, I suppose like I sort of did get that same sort of negative connotations from it, like just from, I suppose, popular culture, yeah. like America, just, it sounds stupid, but American movies where you say like, you joke about the intern, you know, mm. have, making fun of the intern, playing pranks on him, like the office sort of sense, mm. something like that. And you just picture that low-paying job, but it, it definitely wasn't that. So yeah. it's quite surprising to, yeah. If it was, uh, given that connotation of an intern, you know, from popular culture getting paid literally zero or close to zero and getting the coffee and doing the <laughs> photocopying, personally, I would, I'd cl classify your role as a new grad role. Yeah. It's just not podiatry centric it's orthotic centric yeah um but you know everyone markets things differently what award are you on do you know are you under the health service or <laughs> i don't know while julian looks that up we'll um we'll go off we'll go off that little tangent about uh, awards i don't think we actually had that on there so the award is what is what you have to be paid based on the minimum wage set. so it's the minimum standard yeah. that you can be employed against yeah so in podiatry it's the health there's many. Yeah. So there's one in uh, private, um, which name escapes me. Maybe you can put in the notes of the podcast yep. or something like that. We'll find it. Um, but it is a very old award and it, it, it sets the minimum standard to which you'll be paid. It has things like leave loading, which a lot of private contracts don't have in, which I'm sure we'll dive into. Um, in the public health sphere, there's the um, 
Allied Health Award, um, and that's for hospitals. And then there's the Standalone Victorian Community Health Award, which covers um, community health services. So they're, they're, the, the public ones, even though they're different awards, they're very, very similar. They often um, turn over at different times though. So the hospital one um, gets negotiated before the community health one. So the hospital podiatrists often get a pay jump before the community health ones do. Um, and the private ones tends to stay as far as, and don't quote me on this, I think it was from 2004 was the last time it was updated. Yeah, it's, um, it's a fair while. So um, the standard in that is fairly low, given that it's 15 years old or thereabouts, and, and stand corrected if it's been updated. It's been a while since I've looked at it or looked for it. Um, but it's really the onus is on the person agreeing to work in that private practice to negotiate above that award. Whereas the public health ones are fairly stock standard. Everyone's on the same, on the same point. To put in perspective, um, the role that I've just started now was the first role in public health that I've had to negotiate my salary. Up until that point, it's just, this is the award rate and this is what you'll get. Excellent. Um, I guess going on for that, because it's similar to what, I guess it's just another word for the internship and the, and the fixed term is probation periods. A lot of places will give you that probation period. I'll ask you this one, Michael. Do you know many places that pay you less for your probation period? As far as I'm aware, that's against um, the law. That's what it, we've had this discussion. We we do. I do know of a few people. Now it's not under the minimum wage, but it's less than what they'll be off once they get off probation. So if 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 as long as that lesser wage is above that stipulated in the award, then that's fine because that you've ne they've negotiated that with you. You've agreed to it. They're, the organisation is meeting the minimum standard that they need to provide to you, um, and that that's fine. Um, probation periods are, are honestly there to protect the person employing you to protect the business. They don't, you know, they've seen your resume, they've looked at your cover letter, they've had 20 minute, a 20 minute conversation with you. Um, you know, a lot of people can put on a show and, and seem fantastic at an interview and they can hold that facade for a week or two weeks or three weeks, but three months, six months, the real you will shine through. Um, and similarly, but probably to a lesser extent, it's protection for you as the employee looking for a job, you know, the the... The job might seem fantastic, your boss might seem great, um, but you might in three months in be like, you know, this isn't for me. I mean, with, if within my probation period, um, I'm pulling the pin. So as long as it meets the minimum standard um, noted in the award, um, probation periods are good for both parties, but are often more used by the employer against the employee. Yeah, yeah which is, I know that a lot of people go into roles straight out of uni, not really sure what they're doing. Know that you've got that promotion period. I know that Vault's cashed in on it. He's worked at, you worked at somewhere you weren't enjoying too much. Uh, I, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Or it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. The, the circumstances the, yeah. led you to look for positions elsewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. Way. Yeah. That's the... <laughs> and I know of it on the flip side, there's another one, for, another uh, bloke from our cohort who basically had a chat. They got called in, said, "Yeah, sorry, you're not working out. We'll uh, see you later," mm -hmm. and that was it, straight on the spot. So it, it works both ways. That that whether, as Michael was saying, companies can look after themselves a little bit, and you can look after yourself. That we don't know what we want coming out of uni, and you could get a role that looks fantastic, and you get three weeks in, and um, you know they're not changing the the beaver blades and that sort of stuff. Um, which is actually a really cool story about that on uh, bridging the gap. Uh, Anyone who's listened to this that isn't on Podiatry Bridge the Gap, get on it because there's a lot of good podiatry discussion on there. 
a lot of it we disagree with, a lot of it we agree with. Um, but yeah, there's a really interesting story about a placement place in Sydney that I can't remember who it was. Someone who's been out for 20 years said that they questioned something about it when they were there, and a grad from like, someone who's about out for about five years mentioned the same place. And in 15 years, no one has said anything about some of these practices. Um, these are things you'll you'll get to notice once you're out and. Yeah, you don't have to work at the same job for 50 years. Yeah, please don't do that. You'll burn yourself out. Just one point, Jace, you mentioned there um, in terms of being walked out kind of instantly. You had that, that, that probation meeting and they, they walk you out. Um, that, that circumstance, unless it is very, very early in the probation period or unless you've done something significantly wrong and malicious, um, I've never heard of anyone legally being um, walked out of a business, you often will have to, and this is on both sides of the fence, both for you saying I'm ending this because I'm in the probation period or, or the employer doing it. Um, depending on how long you've worked there, there's often a time period that you have to give. It's not just a, I'm done, I'm walking out now. Um, there's a time period. Yeah, in 15 years of management, I've never cashed in on it or told anyone that probation period, see you later. It's not something you really, It's it's yeah. One in a million sort and of it chances. it shouldn't come out of the blue either. If they've got performance issues with you, if they're a good company, they'll, they'll raise them and work with you to overcome them. Like you're a new grad. They don't expect you to, well, they shouldn't expect you to know everything. Um, and they should, you know, they're paying you less than they would someone with 10 years experience. Mm -hmm. They should, um, and I'm doing air quotes when I <laughs> do this, they should look after you and help train you. Not all businesses do that. But I'd like to think the majority do. I suppose they, because it sounds like if you just sort of let them go like that, just walk them out of the company, they're not going to learn. Take the new guys are not going to take anything from that. Like hmm. they're not going to. They probably be wondering why. I suppose they've been dismissed. Exactly. And how you can improve on that. And then you know, human instinct will take hold, and they'll tell. But people will say, "Oh, podiatry is a small industry. You need to look after your reputation." Like it, it, it is, but it doesn't really matter as long as you're being above board and, and being a good person and following the law. If someone treats you badly, I have, and they, they objectively do it, um, both in, as an employee or as an employer. You know, I, I was part of a group chat with the my mates who I graduated podiatry with, and, and just this morning we were talking about. Uh, practice that's been around for a really long time that's absolutely horrible that keeps churning over people and churning over people because they they, they just never change and they never will change um, and if anyone asks me and I won't you know note it in a podcast but if anyone asks me privately I'll happily name that practice mm -hmm. over and over and over and over because um, unfortunately there's a minority of, of practices out there that are bad and it's the onus on the people working there and who leave there to tell their friends tell their peers about um, some of the business operations that take place. And that's a good segue. So one of the, again, one of the reasons we're doing this is so those that are still in uni or those that have just graduated, we're happy for you to contact us in any way, whether it's through the Facebook page, which I think we just started up. Did we make an Insta with it? Not yet. We're we still trying on, to figure out how to do that. We're not the most tech-savvy sort of guys. Phone, don't even think phones were a thing when you were around. <laughs> you were born, I chiseled my uh, first uh, essay out. We're happy for you to contact us and if there's any questions about anything that you're unsure about, which we'll touch on in the next little bit about contracts, let's go to it now, contracts and who to talk to and who to get advice on it. Julian used his dad. Dads are good. Dads will help you with a lot of things. They're good at helping you fix cars and, yeah. you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. But 
sometimes they may not have the the knowledge and the legal nous of these sorts of things. So you always think to yourself, who did you have anyone look over yours, Tony? Um, I did have um, a teacher at Latrobe look over it um, because they've had a lot of experience looking over contracts, and they did offer uh, when we were starting at Latrobe um, that you know they're free to look over it. So I went to them. Yeah, I know. Just one. You used Julian used. You can't see me pointing. Julian used. Um, a sounding board of all of us because he was one of the first to get a contract. Mm-hmm. But who else did you use other than us telling so, you silly things? So use my mates. Um, we have a, like you do, Michael, a Facebook chat where we all just message each other just to check, got everyone to read over it. Things looked above board from our perspective. Then I spoke to my dad as well. And then the third person I spoke to was a podiatry supervisor. Just because I suppose they had that experience in the field. And once they said that it looked fine to them, I was quite happy to go along with it. And most importantly, it looks good to me. Like I know I wasn't really, I didn't, hadn't had that experience looking at contracts before. But from what I was reading, it all sounded reasonable from my perspective. Factoring all those things in helps me make my decision. And what people would you suggest we look at, Michael? Um, I think... Uh, you mentioned a few already so it's like friends and family like just the 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 lay um, look at it to see if it's reasonable or not like you'll be excited when you get your first contract and we mentioned it before you look at the dollar amount and like oh my gosh I'm actually going to get some money now this is going to be great and you kind of don't look at the the detail Um, whereas you know the people who care about you will look at the detail they don't want to see you get ripped off Um, I would leverage your clinical supervisors on external placement, particularly um, those who obviously working publicly but then have some private experience. Public contracts, I should say, they're, they're all standard. They're all written by a proper qualified people and culture department or HR department. So you don't really need to check them beyond, you know, is the grade appropriate? Am I happy to be paid at that grade? All the other conditions are, are the same um, or, or close to it. Um, whereas in private is where you do need to check. So when I was supervising clinic at Latrobe, we always, you know, I would offer to have a look at it. Mindful that I don't have any legal training. I'm just a podiatrist who has seen many, many contracts. And because of how long I've been working in the industry, I have an understanding of what's reasonable and what's not. So I would talk to your supervisors within the clinic. I talk to Kim because those, you know, they've been, they're experienced. They know what's reasonable and what's not. But I still think it's very important to get friends and family outside of podiatry to have a look to, to make sure it you know, meets the pub test. Kim being, for any interstate listeners, if we have any, um, <laughs> the head of podiatry, the head of fourth year podiatry at Latrobe. Yeah, she looks after the um, looks after the clinic and a few subjects, so a wealth of knowledge there. Yeah, that's yeah, Kim Holmes. Just. Kim, Kim Holmes. <laughs> um, I figure then the next couple of points we're going to talk about would be good to group together because they tend to go together on your payslip. Um, tax and super. Um, tax is one of those things, I forget what the saying is, there's three guarantees in life, death, tax, and... Th- more tax. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, so tax is something that you can't get around. Um, Julian and I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago. Get yourself an accountant. Don't do it yourself. You're going to stooge yourself. Uh, Julian and I got quite a different uh, tax return because of that um, for very similar situations. Oh, it's not similar at all because you're subcontractor. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. it'll, it'll equal different. down the end. Yeah. I, I, did, I did it myself the year before though and I thought maybe now that I've got a proper podiatry job, I might do it properly and yeah, didn't regret doing it properly <laughs> through an accountant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely something that, that's... we. 
we can give you all of us here can know the basics of tax. Um, what is it? Nine percent. Tax or super? Super, uh, super, 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 super is nine, nine and a half percent. Super yeah. is nine and a half. Yeah. Tax uh, is variable. Tax, yeah. It's, it's you know if we wanted to do a tax pod chat. You'd lose all your listeners. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna pay tax. If you're paying tax, it means you're generating income for yourself. There are ways to minimise tax. Um, there are legal ways to do it, and there are less legal ways to do it. Obviously, you're going to do the legal ways to do it. On, on your point of, of getting a good accountant, um, I don't know if it's a level of arrogance on my part. I don't have an accountant. Okay, I would much prefer. That's not to say I don't have one that that I would engage with. If I have questions, I will pay an accountant to give me advice so I know what to do. I'd prefer, and I'd recommend this to your to your listeners, have an accountant, but the first time that they do your tax, ask if you could do it with them so you can learn how to do it. Um, because I come across deductions and strategies to help reduce my tax that if I just handed it to you know a, a normal tax account, they're not going to take as much care uh, as I would in doing it myself. Mm-hmm. You know. People listening to this podcast and the, and the guys around the table, you're all tertiary educated people. You have the aptitude to understand tax and how to do it for your little niche market. So I would, I would recommend, yes, having an accountant, but more importantly, learning the fundamentals of tax and how you can leverage it to ultimately pay less. I think one little point I want to add is, because this was in one of our group chats, uh, about one of the boys was talking about uh, deductions. And he did, I'm just going to say dry needling course, for example, $400, $400, give or take. In his mind, he thought that deduction meant he was going to get $400 back in tax. <laughs> no. No, it means that your overall income is reduced by $400. So you pay that tax bracket less. Mm. That What your tax bracket is, that percentage less. It doesn't mean you're going to get $400 back. No. In terms of super, that's one of the ones, yeah. Does anyone here do... You, you might do your own super. Uh, no, self mon- self funded. No, self super is a, is, a, is a different kettle of fish. And you know what? There are low index, cheap industry funds, which which given the the average age of the person listening to this um, podcast, don't do a self managed super. Your life is complicated enough. <laughs> the, the tax code is complicated. The the self managed super standards are, are ridiculous. Just just do an industry fund. You're fine. So yeah, as as we mentioned before, full time, part time. Um, locum yep locum so anything where you're an employee you the organisation will pay your 9.5% super and your tax so it's nothing you have to worry about no that's correct Um, they'll also pay so everyone here and the people listening either have or will soon have now I call it still a hex debt I know that's changed to a help debt now I'm looking at Blank faces. <laughs> it is, yeah, I think it is. How, the debt oh, associated yeah. with higher education. <laughs> yeah. um, so you'll, you'll pay extra tax until that, that we'll call it hex debt, is, is, is gone. And that's reasonable. Um, your parents, if they went to uni, they didn't have to pay for it, but they stuffed up a lot of things and now you do. <laughs> um, so, yes, if you are a subcontractor, so if you are acting as an entity yourself, you have your own ABN, then you... Uh, should pay your own super um, and that that is that is difficult in the sense you need to do it it's something else you need to do um, but that is something that you should be doing it's very easy as a subcontractor not to pay yourself super because you're essentially taking nine and a half percent of the money that's in your pocket and putting it in a 
fancy bank account that you can't touch until you're over 60. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that a legal requirement that you, even as a subcontractor, you still have to pay that 9.5% on yes. all your earnings? You can't like keep the money for yourself. You can, well, you're paying yourself super. Mm-hmm. Like it's still your money. Yeah. Um, look, I know lots and lots of people who are subcontractors who don't pay themselves super. Um, to be honest, for my private business, I don't pay myself super because I get super through my normal employee job. Um, but if my only job was as a subcontractor or if my majority job, as a lot of people have multiple jobs, maybe you're an employee at one organization three days a week and a subcontractor two days a week somewhere else, I would certainly pay myself super. Particularly now when you're trying to build a foundation, um, I, would, I would, if it's not, it should be legal. Uh, so it should be illegal not to. Um, but if it's not, then then I would highly recommend paying yourself super. And being mindful of, of the demographic who this is probably going out to, super is forced savings, basically. It's the government's way of paying less pension once we retire. So you have to pay X amount. I think they last time I looked, if you retire at 65, which by the time we retire will not be the retirement age, it'll be a lot higher than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was 800000 to if you expect to live to 80 so what's that 25 uh, 15 years 800,000 or something like that so it's basically a way to make sure that you're not living pension to pension if you're on the pension and we have a way to survive for as long as possible um, it's probably the easiest way of explaining it in the simplest of nutshells mm. mm-hmm. super is important yeah. don't, don't, don't forget about it yeah um, I was just being mindful of how we're going time-wise. Again, thinking about who's listening to this. An ABN, an Australian business number. The only time you need to worry about it is if you are subcontractor. If you are an employee somewhere, you don't need to worry about it. They're free, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. It takes you yeah. five minutes to do them online. Oh, a bit longer, but it's yeah. all online. Yeah, so it's pretty simple to do. The only time you need to worry about it is if you're a subcontractor. If anyone's got any questions or any things on that, just shoot through a direct message and we'll, we'll go through that. The ATO website is actually really good when it comes to ABNs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend having a look at that. Um, for the purpose of not putting people to sleep, ABNs are important um, and the way that they work. It's, I think it's just being an adult, it's important to understand how they work. Um, but I, I look at the ATO website. I, I think it's it's just a fundamental life skill to know how a business functions in a country like Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say, Tony, you're probably one of us here who has one of the better pay scale and grades. Mm-hmm. Um, he said with a smile when he said. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you use? Do you know how to check what the what scale we should be on and that sort of thing? Or, or did you just go into it and think what Michael was saying for yay dollars? Yeah, uh, when I first got my full-time contract, I thought, wow, this is good. Uh, sign, sign the paper and here we go. Uh, it's not, it wasn't until later on that I uh, checked on the minimum award and so forth because there's a lot of terms in the contract that I was unsure about. And just to uh, make sure that I was you know, above the minimum wage. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there was a website that I managed to find it. It's very outdated, uh, but I'm sure I can link that um, on the podcast information there for you guys. All of the active awards in Australia are on the Fair Work Australia website. Yep. 
It'll take a little bit of searching, but you, you can find them. Yeah. And your award that you're on should be in your contract. Yes. So you should be able to just bang that into the search, find the year, find all your, um, you know, for our, for our situation, master's graduate. Um, it's worth checking it as well every year. Um, I've just had this conversation with my employer that as we our scale went up in the 1st of July, my scale went up incorrectly, purely a clerical error. Um, is it a clerical error or is it a strategic error? <laughs> <laughs> Look, knowing where you work, it's probably just a clerical error, yeah. error, but there are practices out there who make strategic errors. Yeah, um, that's it. So yeah, be aware of Fair Work. Um, it's a great website. It, they're relatively helpful if you do need to contact them, just be prepared to give them a lot of your time. Um, I guess we've touched on pretty much all the other ones there. I guess the last one we'll touch on before we go into a couple of quick questions for, for Michael. Um, perks and allowances. Now, M Michael touched on it before, commission, salary. I touched on it that that's, I'm on that blended mix. But there are other perks out there that will be in your contracts and they're worth looking for. Volt, with your Ballarat one, mm -hmm. is there any education in that? Uh... Allowances? Oh, uh, yeah, so because Ballarat goes, I guess, under rural, um, yeah, I talked to my manager about this. I have to apply for, um, uh, I think it's RWAV, or it's like Rural Workforce Australia. Rural Workforce Australia. Yeah, yes. so um, in that sense is that if I do some training or some workshops or something where I have to pay money, I have to do the course first, mm. and then after that, I have to apply for it. Yes. And then correct. there's a bit of a process with it, and then... I think it's easier now than it was probably like 10 years ago. No, it's not. It's, not, um, okay, it's, yeah. it's harder now. It's harder so, now. Oh, okay. so often, so Rural Workforce Australia is a government entity that helps fund, it's to incentivize people to work rurally. So they will help. So this isn't Ballarat, Ballarat wasn't it? Yeah, it's not yeah. Ballarat saying, oh, we're going to put X amount of money towards your professional development. Mm -hmm. It's the government saying to help get you to Ballarat, we're going to help pay for X, Y, and Z. So you need to pay for it first and then, um, and then uh, apply to have some payback. There's another one, and the logo I can see, it's a cockatoo. I think it's SARA, S-A-R-R-A-H. Um, don't ask me for what that acronym stands for, but if you Google it, I'm sure you'll find it. The cockatoo is the logo, and they will fund um, professional development for allied health um, individuals in rural settings as well. So that's not necessarily a, a perk in a contract, that's just working rurally is, is great. So it's yeah. one of the perks there. Do you have, does anyone else in here have education or any other allowances yet? Yeah, I think uh, at the start in the contract, they've mentioned about a $500 allowance that I could use. Um, and I straight away used that on the pod conference in Adelaide. Um, but that was a great way to you know, save some money and educate yourself in a setting where you can learn more things than what you did at uni and so forth. So there's some contracts out there that gives you, you know, a bit of leeway into what you want to do. So I'm lucky with my contract because I've got to do a bit of travel between individual clinics. Going back a step to tax, travel allowance between workplaces you can do, to and from work doesn't count. Yeah, Just to uh, get you on, on board with that. So I've got to go between clinic to clinic. Um, so I get a fuel allowance uh, on top of my regular salary, mm -hmm. plus I get a phone allowance, uh, which I think should almost be mandated 
into a lot of contracts because I'm forever on the drive home calling patients just to get that extra bit of courtesy and care towards them, knowing that I'm in the car for an hour, I can have a chat, ask them how they're doing about something in particular. And we're using our phones that frequently for emails and all that sort of stuff. So most places should have something similar like that in there. Um, They should, but they don't. Yes. Uh, Is there any other allowances you can think of that that may pop up on people's contracts? So in in public health, um, it's not usually written into the contract as to how much professional development funding they'll give you. But if you're for a large public health organization, it's kind of intrinsic to the organization. Like there'll be a library there and you'll have access to journals and um, they'll have internal professional development. Um, And then each, say if you want to go to the course, uh, the conference rather in Adelaide, it's by negotiation. So you can say, you know, you Western Health, will you pay for half of this and they'll say no and you'll negotiate down. Um, I know when I first started working and I started working first in the private sector, in my contract it had, I think it was $800 a year that I could use for um, uh, for courses that we that my employer and I agreed would be um, reasonable. Often now I find a, a trend, which I think is a good trend, is they'll match dollar for dollar up to a certain amount that, you know, you Jason, if you want to go to X course and it's $500, you'll pay 250 they'll pay 250 which I think is reasonable. I guess that sort of goes through all the things we really wanted to chat about. That was meant to be a brief overview of contracts, and as we found already, we all love to gas bags, so that quick overview went a lot longer than we thought. So I guess we go into a couple of questions aimed directly at Michael. What are some of the hidden things in a contract that we may miss or something that's potentially a little bit dodgy that you've seen or heard of on a contract? I think one of the main things that I've seen is um, when it's a commission-only based contract, um, if if you're going into a position that doesn't have an existing patient base, so if you're starting with zero patients, it doesn't matter how high the percentage is, you know, 60% of zero is still zero. So it's important to know what type of uh, working arrangement you're walking into. If you are taking over an existing load, uh, a patient load from someone else, and they're paying you a percentage, that, that's a really good model because you, you're going to have income generated straight away. Whereas if you're going in starting scratch and you have no patients on day one, it doesn't matter what commission you're on, you still are going to earn no money. So it might be worth starting off on a lower hourly rate and then negotiating that you know six months after you've built up a patient base that you renegotiate your salary at that point and push for a commission-based um, agreement that, yeah. that's what I would say and in terms of a commission rate is there a certain percentage you'd say is fair for new grads coming out straight from uni like on the contract what would you say is a fair commission rate it depends on what you're going into if, if you're going into a full patient load I think the lowest that you'll go is is 40 percent um, because remember, out of that, you're going to pay your own super. So that, that knocks you down, just rounded up to 30%. Um, and then those on costs we're talking about, the annual leave, you factor that in, and it goes down very, very quickly to something closer to 22%. That's not a lot. Um, so I think minimum, minimum, minimum is 40 And then the highest that I'm aware of is um, 55%. And that is for a very experienced podiatrist. Most, I'd say, around the 45 months. I guess with new grads, it can be quite intimidating uh, talking to your potential new boss, um, but for those out there starting a new job, what tips would you give in regards to negotiating a contract? I think people underestimate how rare a commodity a good podiatry new grad is. 
and they think that the employer has all the power in that kind of negotiation. I, I think it's the opposite. Um, yes, more and more new grads are, are graduating every year, but um, high quality new grads, ones with the aptitude to actually do the job straight out of uni and with the willingness to learn and grow and do all those good things, um, are less and less. So um, my, I'm probably a little bit too blunt. Um, don't, don't sugarcoat it. This is what I think I am worth and just this is what I'm going to, to offer. And they'll you know, negotiate and they'll go, you know, that's unreasonable, that's fine. I'll go find another job. Being in retail management, we always offered people less than what we expected them to take. Because if they say yes, hunky-dory, we've saved X amount of dollars. Mm. If they say no, we were going to pay them that anyway. So be aware that 90% of private businesses are going to do that. Yeah, so kind of going off that, uh, it's kind of a difficult situation, especially for like, graduates or you know younger podiatrists. But I guess that sense of when to say no. So maybe it could be you know, the contract's not as fair as you think it is or the jobs ain't right. So like, what would you be... Mindset for that. Oh, I think when to say no is a is a variable that only you can answer. Um, you know, you're out of uni, um, you're keen to work, you don't really have that much to lose. So I'd, I'd be more inclined to take a risk. But I think trusting your your gut and that that first instinct. If you walk into a practice and you don't like the vibe, there's probably a reason for that. And and, and I wouldn't enter into that. I can speak to my own experience. I remember going in for a job interview. Um, and I walked in and, and the receptionist was really nice, but I met with the, the clinic manager and I was kind of looking around, the room was dirty. Um, she was talking about how to get the most money out of every single patient. I'm like, you know what? Not my type of place. And um, I still went through with the interview. You know, now if I was in that situation, I'd probably just thank them and, and, and leave. But I was nervous, so I just went through with it. Um, I was still offered the job and I, and I politely declined. So. Uh, People think that they're going to miss opportunities. Like it's, I think it's always better if you're not comfortable with something, just say no. It's, it's. There's always more jobs. There's. People think that you know if they don't get, particularly when they graduate, if they don't have a job by you know the following January or the following February, they'll never get a job. The job cycle is continuous. There's always more jobs available. Excellent. Um, I guess the only other little question I was going to think about. Do you, so this is off the fly, so I'm going to try and word this as politely as possible. Do you think there are many podiatry clinics out there that are looking to manipulate or make the most out of new grads to save their own bottom dollar? And if so, what would some of the things you would see in a job advertisement, adverse, advertisement or contract that would make you be wary of that? Um, unfortunately, there are some. They are the minority but we tend to talk about them more. We're really, really talking about the, the private sector here. The public sector, they're all regulated. They all have to meet national standards. They're all pretty good. In the private sector, it's very variable. My biggest thing is if you see the same company advertising over and over and over for a new exciting opportunity, it means someone's left. If, and you know, I was saying before about the group chat with my friends, that same business advertises every couple of months because they've just churned through someone else. If you see a company, private company, advertising really frequently, um, that's a red flag in my book. I think that's a good way to end up. Um, we'd just like to thank Michael for coming down on Monday night and uh, sharing his time with us and valuable research, uh, resource to have. Um, if we get any questions that we need a little bit of extra help answering through any social media, are you happy for us to flick them on to you and... 
yes, that's fine. Fantastic. So if anyone does have any questions or anything else they want to know about regarding this, we're new to this. We're happy to take as much feedback as possible. If it's nice, if it's not nice, go ahead. I, uh, I've got thick skin, so I'm sure the other guys do too. Um, so, yeah, thanks again for listening. Uh, we'll see you guys again in a fortnight.